From 11FS, I'm Sarah Koshansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Standard Chartered's new CEO and virtual banking license, TSB's boss steps down after a very stormy few months, and Fintech finally makes it into the dictionary. All this and much, much more on today's show. And welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you in partnership with the good people from Microsoft Azure. My name is Sarah Koshansky, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Ross Gallagher. How are you doing today, Ross? Hey, Sarah. I'm really well, thank you. What a week. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The busyness, it just hasn't stopped. But we are here, and we are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London, England. Before we get started, if you have any questions for us to answer about fintech, finance, or even our favorite flavor of crisp, drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com or find us on social media. As always, we're not alone. Ross and I are joined in the room by some fantastic guests. We have making her debut, uh, Lois Lorenshaw, Ventures Principal at Nationwide. How are you doing today, Lois? Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and we have an old hand back. We have Val Christensen, Director of Growth and Comms at Oak North. How are you doing, Val? Yeah, very well. Thanks. It's been a very exciting day. So, um, yeah, glad to be here celebrating it with you guys. Um, With that further ado, let's start the show. So the first story today is that Standard Chartered's new CEO and virtual banking license. Um, So the story comes from FinNews.Asia. Their headline is Standard Chartered bulks up. Uh, So David actually spoke to Samir Sabawal, the head of retail banking at Standard Chartered, to get the inside scoop on this story. I have the great pleasure of speaking to Samir Subawal, Head of Retail Banking at Standard Charter Bank, dialing in all the way from Hong Kong. Welcome to Fintech Insider, Samir. For our listeners outside the region, can you give us a bit of an overview of the HK banking market at the moment? There's loads and loads of different things happening. Yeah, sure, uh, David. Uh, Hong Kong, as everyone knows, um, is a market with about 7 million bankable population. Uh, it's got more than 100 licensed banks operating in the city. Uh, So clearly a very competitive market for financial services. Uh, Hong Kong, obviously, as everyone knows, is also a key financial hub in Asia. It has three note-issuing banks, and we are one of the note-issuing banks. The market, while it has more than 100 licensed banks, is also dominated by the top six, seven banks uh, and has been for many years. And we certainly are fortunate to be part of that uh, group of banks as well. The additional bit about Hong Kong is obviously the potential opening up of China, the continued development of Belt and Road Initiative, and the recent conversation around integration of the Greater Bay Area will bring further opportunities to the financial services uh, business in Hong Kong. Uh, We as a bank are obviously fairly confident about the outlook of the banking sector here in Hong Kong and continue to invest in this market as is evident by our decision to apply for the virtual bank license. And, and that, um, that decision, you know, it feels like a real sort of bold move to kind of really get out ahead of this. You know, you, there's lots of um, kind of rumors about various different people who are applying for licenses. But, you know, h- how important do you think it is that the HKMA have actually opened up that virtual banking license approach? It seems like a, a great step from them. Yeah, I think so. I think the the virtual bank license is obviously, uh, for people who are not familiar, is part of HKMA's wider seven initiatives as what they call new era of smart banking for Hong Kong. Um, We certainly are seeing HKMA as a regulator in Asia taking the lead uh, and helping the banking sector. I think this is also a framework that they've put in place 
just to be able to future proof hong kong as a global financial hub i think it, it, i also believe that the issuing of virtual bank licenses by hkma will speed up the development of fintech in hong kong some of which has really been lacking over the last few years uh, it, it, it indeed is really bold on part of hkma they've announced the dates by when applications have to come in there's clearly a lot of interest the media talks about 29 applications that have come in for the first batch hkma has also indicated timelines around when the licenses would be granted so clearly there is you know behind uh, a strategic intent there is a clear intent on execution by hkma as well and we as a as a financial services entity and a bank in hong kong welcome that and that's great we um you know we we spoke a lot in the uk about how important the role the fca has played in in really sort of bringing to life the 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 fintech space and like you say that that competitiveness using regulation as a competitive advantage is is really there so i i guess you know how do you think the virtual license will set you guys apart? Because I, I guess um, there are a number of organizations who aren't doing that, but clearly there are advantages of, of kind of making this step. Yeah, look, I mean, rather than me comment about competitors not choosing to do this, uh, let me focus on wh- what benefits do we see that this brings to Standard Charter. Um, first is the virtual bank license uh, is set up as a separate entity. Uh, so that gives us an, an, an optionality uh, in, in Hong Kong, as well as the way we will build this virtual bank uh, is for uh, potentially scaling it beyond Hong Kong. Uh, clearly, at this point in time, our focus is to build, deliver, and run this in Hong Kong, but it gives us that functionality, uh, that, that optionality. Secondly, um, you know, we believe we are trying to create a smart contextual bank for people in Hong Kong uh, that'll actually be integrated into their daily digital lives. And this virtual bank license and the use of, uh, obviously, the latest technology in building a tech stack for this bank enables us to be able to offer that smart contextual banking for clients. Virtual banking license uh, also enables us to participate in segments where we have traditionally punched below our weight. Uh, without getting into the details of what those segments are and what our relative market shares are. Uh, But clearly, there are segments in Hong Kong where our market shares are less than what our natural market share in the market is. And we believe this will give us that opportunity to participate profitably in those segments. So these are some of the benefits that we are expecting this from a standard charter perspective. Clearly, in addition, it helps us innovate within an environment that is controlled uh, and and that innovation around technology, uh, digital commerce, ability to apply, uh, acquire clients, think about risk differently, obviously, in the context of overall risk for the bank and the regulator, all of that gives us that ability to do that differently within a separate entity. And uh, hopefully learn from that in the broader bank as well. No, that, that's great. And and I guess you, you mentioned um, the, you know, the one belt, one road uh, strategy, which, uh, you know, having spent a little bit of time in, in Hong Kong and Asia, you hear probably about every 30 seconds at the moment, there's a, you know, a real sort of uh, push behind that. How much do you think the virtual licenses will allow you to take the virtual services internationally? Is this a, a play for mainland China as well as the, the environment within Hong Kong? Look, I think right now the focus is to build this for Hong Kong. As, as you know, uh, more than anyone else, uh, it'll take quite an effort in the next nine to 12 months for us to build and launch this in Hong Kong. Um, the focus is to actually launch and run this in Hong Kong and prove the success. Uh, but clearly, we are building it for 
that optionality to take this beyond Hong Kong. And and it's obviously dependent on a few things. Uh, the regulatory framework in markets where we think of beyond Hong Kong needs to be able to facilitate that, just like HKMA is facilitating this in Hong Kong. The business model and our participation model in that market needs to support a digital bank optionality in that market as well. So obviously, it'll take some thought process and discussion within the bank in terms of what the right markets are, but we're creating it in a way that gives us that optionality. Specifically to Belt and Road, I think that's broader for commercial and corporate banking uh, more than retail, uh, but there is conversation around Greater Bay Area and integrating the broader Greater Bay Area into one uh, region. Um, let's see how that evolves uh, and whether there is applicability of this to that region. But at this point in time, focus really is on residents in Hong Kong. That makes total sense. And, and I guess the, the last part of the good news this week is uh, the appointment of Dennis Govan as the CEO of the new enterprise that you're putting out. So uh, congratulations on that that appointment. Um, what, what impact do you think Dennis is going to have over the next, uh, like you say, there's a year of uh, real hard lifting to do now, isn't there? Yeah, look, I mean, Dennis joined the bank uh, more than a year ago uh, in a global role. Um, He's been working closely with this uh, on this with me for the last six months or so. Denise has been a great hire for the bank. He's done something similar in I Guarantee uh, in Turkey. Uh, he's had many years of experience, all of all of which is in the digital space. So he's an invaluable addition to Standard Chartered family. And obviously, we're looking forward to his leadership in building and in delivering this bank in Hong Kong. Fantastic. Well, Samir, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, it's a real uh, great to see people going out there and making this type of stuff happen. But uh, thanks for joining us on Fintech Insider. Thank you, David. Thank you for your time. So Standard Chartered Bank in Hong Kong has set up an entity for its virtual bank and submitted its application for a virtual banking license to the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, or the HKMA for short. Um, we first talked about them applying for this license back on episode 245, um, but now they've actually gone ahead and done it. And uh, industry veteran, I don't know if that's, he gives himself that title or if the article gives him that title, um, Dennis Guzvan has been appointed as the CEO of Standard Chartered Bank's new entity. So this is kind of an interesting one for, for those who, who have haven't heard the backstory. Um, HKMA is following the UK regulators' lead and making it easier for uh, new banks to to come into the market by allowing them sort of special license. Um, and most of the people who've gone for that license are the sort of the tech giants you'd expect. Um, but Standard Chartered Bank, which is quite a big uh, incumbent, has also gone along for the ride. So it's it's an interesting um, interesting decision, especially as none of the others, as far as we know, have yet done so. So what do we think? Is this is this using regulation as a competitive advantage or is it nothing of the sort? Well, I guess it's, it's sort of really what the impetus behind it is. Obviously, with the UK, it was, you know, the first new banking license granted in 150 years was Metro back in 2010. And that was very much born out of the financial crisis. Um, this is obviously happening now, um, 10 years on from the financial crisis. Is the impetus just to sort of overcome customer inertia? Is it to increase competition? I mean, obviously, you've seen quite a few larger banks around the world um, creating sort of digital propositions. I know that that's one of the stories that's coming up later. I think I'd be more interested to see what the, the propositions we focused on. Um, the article doesn't give too much away in terms of whether it's a retail-led or a commercial-led proposition. And it'd be interesting to see if, if that's what they're going to be doing, sort of SME lending, or is it more going down the Monza Revolute route. I believe the license is for retail banking. I believe it's the special, like the way they've started is that it's, it's for retail banking. Um, certainly the people, the big tech giants we've seen going into it are the, you know, the the, the, the Alipays and the, the, the 
Ten, I was going to say the WeChat, the Tencent who have WeChat and WePay. Um, so it's very much kind of a consumer brand to start with. But who knows where they'll go with it if it works? Yeah, it feels like a sort of play for millennials, doesn't it? Um, the millennials are back. The, the M word. Um, but no, I mean, Denise has some awesome um, experience, you know, BBVA. Garanti during his role at Garanti responsible for sort of end-to-end digital assets and sort of iGaranti so the, the mobile only bank in Turkey so um you know there, there's some good experience coming out of this actually Sarah when I read it I I, I picked up on exactly the same point that you did was I, I wondered how Denise would feel about being described as an industry veteran <laughs> it's kind of on the one hand it makes you sound very experienced and wise but it also makes you sound kind of old and battle scarred so it depends which way you take it I suppose um I'm sure in this sense it's definitely meant as a compliment and as you said he has a huge amount of experience. I think there's also though a lot that's happening in Hong Kong in terms of supporting the fintech ecosystem. You've got um, Hong Kong Fintech Week coming up later this year. You've got Finnovate Asia taking place there. I know the Department of International Trade is taking a delegation of UK fintechs over there as well, as part of a fintech trade mission. So um, it's really good then to see that that ecosystem is sort of yielding results and having um, banks and other financial institutions take advantage of the regulation yeah. regulatory changes. And there's been sort of traditionally um, real alignment from a regulatory perspective as well between the UK and Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the regulatory, the regulation, or the basis of regulation, if you like, the law book is almost identical, largely because it was British law in Hong Kong until quite recently. But yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that will be key to watch will be whether any British fintechs and British banks decide to head over that way as kind of an expansion route as the regulation gets more friendly. Yeah, I think what I took from it was that it would be a, probably a mobile-led initiative they're looking to partner they're looking to bolster that fintech ecosystem in hong kong and given the demographic there and the widespread mobile use it seems like there could be loads to learn from that i think absolutely it's one of those we will wait and see um on tenterhooks so the second story is funnily enough about a new digital bank and uh, this one in fact comes from a british well no not a british in fact hsbc is the incumbent in question. Uh, They're planning a digital bank to counter uh, online rivals. The best thing about this story, I have to say, is the project name. So the headline is HSBC close to launching a new standalone digital bank known as Project Iceberg, uh, which is expected to focus on small business customers with a possible beta launch this year. Um, They are launching in the UK. Um, a banking industry source said all the big banks are recruiting hundreds of people to build attacker brands within their own organisations and in fact in the UK most of them are going after SMBs I mean the RBS fund has a, a huge huge amount to do with that as does um, the success of brands like Oak North that have specialised in SMB lending and, and, and you know done really really well out of it I I kind of agree with the analyst that they've quoted here um, a lady called Olivia Burdak from uh, Forrester who cautioned that the approach might backfire in a very saturated UK market So I kind of, my personal opinion on this is that HSBC are quite late to the field. And if you're going to come in with something now, it needs to not be what everybody else is doing. How are they going to make a challenger brand that focuses on SMBs, not what everybody else is doing? I would love to see. I mean, it's just it's just very convenient timing. I think is the is the thing that I thought when I read this. And you know, obviously, the, there's been quite a bit of backlash already um, from a couple of different challenger bank bosses who've said, you know, the likes of um, Santander and TSB, you know, shouldn't be allowed to to apply for any of the grants within the fund. Um, obviously, applications are opening in November, and the largest uh, grants will be given to the banks that are offering current accounts, business current accounts. So the fact that they're then announcing, as long as you 
you've publicly announced your intention to launch business current accounts, then you can apply for that fund. You don't you don't need to actually have the current account yet. So uh, just quite interesting uh, timing. And I almost think why why launch a new bank focused on this? Why not focus on the millions of SME customers that you're already serving and make that proposition better? It's interesting as well because um, a lot of the I know a lot of the stuff with the RBS and you know why the original plan to launch another brand was because they had reputational issues with the way that they had served small businesses. Um, the HSBC, as far as I know, could could as you say just spend that money on upping the services they already have. I mean, they surely already have a huge number of small business customers. So why not just make things better for them? Why bother with rebranding and all the effort and money that's going to be poured into like setting up a new team? And you know, I mean, goodness knows how long it came up. They took them to come up with the idea of Project Iceberg as you know the the project name, but that presumably is already eaten into the budget. Well, so. hundred million is a is a very big incentive. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and 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 actually building out your point as well. So I mean, RBS typically have had the lion's share of that SME customer base, right, in the UK. So so they had a sort of added incentive. I think I'm probably slightly more skeptical, Val, even than you. You described it as interesting timing. I mean, I think it's <laughs> I, I think it's downright cynical. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I mean, suddenly now everybody wants to play in that. Um, that SMB space, a space that every, I think everyone around the table here knows inside out after having basically ignored them for yeah. the, the best part of what? If I was an SMB, I'd be going, screw you, I think. I think it's that sort of saying, okay, well, now you're interested because there's the chance, you know, one in however many, 15, uh, I don't know how many, how many banks are offering business card accounts, but a one in 15 chance of securing the biggest fund, which is, I think there's one for 100 million and then two for 50 million. It's just going to be very interesting. I mean, that certainly, obviously, the, the delegation or the committee that's been in charge of allocating the funds, they're going to have a very tough job because they need to make sure that they give the funds to banks that, you know, from a, I guess, a PR perspective are going to be doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is creating more competition. But at the same time, um, you know, a bank like HSBC has, you know, such a wide remit that actually um, they could probably do quite a bit as well with the money. So it's going to be interesting to see who gets it. And where you're coming from um, in terms of motivation um, actually is important in terms of what you ultimately offer to customers. I think if you define the the sort of problem really well up front, the solution's probably quite different than if you just jump straight into solutionizing. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the key to all of this. It's kind of like, well, great. As I said, you have to differentiate and even more importantly than that, which is what you're touching on there, Ross, you have to make it better than what's already out there. I don't want a shiny new brand if the product's just as bad as the old one. That doesn't help me, you know. I don't I don't really care if my new bank is Iceberg Bank if it doesn't have any better you know, levels of service and doesn't make my life easier, which is actually all SMBs really want is somebody to save them time. Like, honestly, like that's as far as I'm aware and, you know, completely every, every business I've ever spoken to, rather every small business owner, I've spoken to is like I just want somebody to save me time yeah. I just want less admin so, that's literally all I want in life it's something that gets the bank out of the way in, yeah. in the, that small business context I mean it's something that always stood out to me from conversations I've had with Rishi Val in particular is that he suffered through it and then got to the point where he was so frustrated that he said all right I'm going to fix this yeah, I think that's how we managed to build a proposition that I guess works for them. Whereas this is, we're going to build a proposition because there's a hundred million pounds that we could get without having to, you know, dilute any, any, allocate any shares. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. I believe you, Val. I know I'm on your side and I, I, I am absolutely a cynic, but, um, but yes, I think I think we'll we'll move on from that one and and you know revisit it. What I think we're going to have to have a whole special dedicated to when the uh, funds are announced because February next year. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be like we should have a party or something. <laughs> uh, 
So the next story is um, again about an incumbent bank, but this is about TSB and the story comes from the BBC. Um, TSB's boss has stepped down after a string of IT failures. So um, Paul Pester, who has been in charge of the bank for seven years, uh, stepped down last week. Um, chairman Richard Meddings will take on the role of executive chairman uh, until a new CEO is appointed. Um, Nikki Morgan, the chair of the Treasury Committee, said she felt Mr. Pester's decision was the correct one. Since the IT problems at TSB began, Paul Pester set the tone for TSB's complacent and misleading public communication. She said, ouch. It's even worse, though. So I, I, I sort of see where she's coming from. But the next bit of the story is even better. So does, I assume that you guys know that what happened with this letter from Richard Meddings. So... Pester says he's going to step down. Nicky Morgan says, yes, good. His tone, his communication is all wrong. And then Medding sends her a letter which uh, refers to her as, hi, Morgan. And the letter is dated September 2019. Now, if what she's looking for is, um, you know, more honest, open and accurate communication, I imagine her hopes are not high at this point. It's a, it's it's probably um, a, a good indication of sort of where we're at, yeah. social media and all that sort of stuff. But when I saw it, I, I just thought fake news. I thought that can't be real. You know, the Dear Morgan in September 2019, turns out it was. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, Pester stepping down, I, I was torn with this because I don't know how much of it is actually his fault. Do you know what I mean? I, it's one of those things that I know that there always has to be um, a figurehead. I know there always has to be somebody to take the blame. Um, TSB has already lost three senior executives as a, well, not as a result of, but following on from, so draw your own conclusions. To lose Pester as well, yeah, I suppose it might be expected, but he's been there seven years. Some would argue he probably was coming to the end of his tenure anyway. I mean, I think, you know, this was probably the the straw that broke the camel's back. It was it was a, a reason to, to go. Um, and he's done, you know, he's done a really good job over the last um, the last several years um, with a very sort of quite challenging task. Um, I think what I, I found, you know, I mean, I'm not sort of feeling bad for the guy who's getting 1.2 million <laughs> pay package and about half a million of benefits. So, um, you know, he's not going to be, um, you know, he's not going to be starving anytime soon. But um, I think what I thought was interesting was the that 1.9 million customers were were impacted, you know, frozen out of their accounts and. They had almost 94,000 complaints, but then only, I mean, only, but then 26,000 customers leaving, which is as a fraction of the whole, about 1% of the, you know, 2 million who were impacted. Well, the, well, the, the more bizarre thing is that 20,000 new accounts were opened over the period. So those, but that, that data, I believe, is from Q1 of this year. So what would be really interesting is to see Q2's data, because most of this stuff, I think we've talked about it on the show before, happened just on on. Of April, I think it started, April, May, and that's kind of that will be interesting. We actually so um decided that our own opinions would probably should probably be supplemented here because we are probably slightly biased. So we asked the good people of Oldgate if they had heard of the TSB issues, um, of any other bank outages. There was in fact a TSB outage literally last week. Um, and if so, would that stop them banking with them? So let's hear from the good people of Oldgate. Has your bank ever had an outage? Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, I just no. haven't been told about it. I believe not. There have been points where my card just stopped working for no reason. Um, not that I'm aware of, no. Yeah, every weekend, usually between the hours of midnight and 5am. No, it just says there's no service. It just says scheduled outage. It doesn't say what the schedule is. Not that they remember. Uh, yes, Monzo. No. No, not that I can recall. Yes, so actually, I'm very angry about this. <laughs> I thought I lost my card, and then when I was drunk, I cancelled it in June. And then I ordered another card, 
again and it got the system got confused and then because of this whole new thing I still haven't got a new bank card TSB (laughs) so I still don't have a new bank card and I got another bank card in the mail that they said would work and then that didn't work so How long it's have you not had a bank card for? Two and a half months. Oh, and then I like filled out their form online to complain and they were like, we have eight weeks to respond to this. <laughs> so now I need to call them and make a formal complaint again. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what's your ETA, do you reckon? <laughs> to get a card? Yeah. I have no idea. Well, now their CEO's resigned. I'm not sure what's going to go on, to be honest. So we'll see. That was fun. Yeah, the card issue is an interesting one because... Um, you know, I think um, the vast majority of people in the UK in particular are double banked. So typically if, if one card s- stops working, I'll, I'll, I'll use the other card, but then it, it's the sort of knock-on effects from there. So does that then become my primary spending card? And that's going to be a concern for banks. I might be in the minority, but I actually feel a little bit sorry for Paul Pester. Um, I think he tried to do the right thing like through his twitter account keep people updated i think the fact that he was kind of saying oh everything's sorted and then it wasn't is probably more a reflection on just how complex their legacy it systems are um the information that was being fed up to him and yeah i i feel sorry for him i think it's um i think he's he's handled the transition quite well i think if he had stepped aside straight away um a la david cameron um it would have been <laughs> even more of a mess and, and actually Brexit to the I well, i'm just i'm i'm i'm, I'm using a uh, obviously I'm, I'm sort of using an example but you know i think it, it would have been even more of a mess and actually the role would have been even more of a poison chalice so i think the fact that we've come out the other side a little bit the technical issues have been more or less resolved i think it, it, it's just a nicer way for someone else to go in and take that role. But I think the thing is that the challenge is that it almost deters other larger banks with legacy systems from then looking at their looking at how they can can sort of make a change and overcome those issues because they can see what happened with TSB which had what 5 or 6% of the market share if for those who have, might have 10 or 15 or 20% then you have to you know quadruple the the fine figures you have to um you know assume that the number of customers leaving is then going to be quadrupled as well. And then maybe would that prevent them from looking at their systems and say, okay, let's try and do a reboot? Or are they going to say, you know what, it's not worth the risk because look what happened to TSB? Would you not hope that it inspires them to learn from it, though? Because I think the thing that's quite obvious to me is that you shouldn't... I mean, I don't even know why you they even TSB would have thought of doing this, but why would you do a big bang changeover? Like, why would you do that? Like, that I baff... I still don't understand why they would have done that. And, and anyone that I speak to that's been involved in, 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 in big bang migrations they typically go wrong. Because you need one small thing to go wrong. Because it's Big Bang, that it just implode, you know, it just exacerbates the problem, you know, over and over and over and again until the whole thing's fallen over as opposed to it being like, oh, well that one thing went over, let's fix that one thing. Right, let's move on to the next thing. Iterate people. I think the learnings need to be around communication. Feels to me like the overwhelming public sentiment is irritation. Nikki Morgan speaks for the the entire nation with those comments. She is ire personified in that letter and it's only going to be worse after the response. I think the lesson to everyone is open, honest, transparent communication and respect your customers. And this is why I feel sorry for Paul Pester because I think everybody talks about Tom Blomfield and Anne Bowden and, and Megan Kaywood and when things go down they are all over Twitter and they're updating people but the reality is that their tech stack is you know it, it's straightforward enough to allow them to do that whereas that's not the case with TSB and their organizational structure isn't straightforward enough either. 
I, and I don't disagree with you. I think that one advantage that Monzo and Starling and L have is that all their customers are by their very nature on their phones and using things like Twitter. And, you know, I, I don't know if anybody else has spotted that Monzo has had for the last week or so um, high response times, just as kind of like a standard message in the app. But I check that app every day. So I see it and I know what's going on. And, and I also, I'm an avid Twitter user and I'm, I'm, you know, all this kind of thing. I wonder how many of um, TSB's customers, I mean, I hate to bring my mum into this, but I haven't brought her in for a while. She gets all her news from the BBC website or the BBC News. So if they're not reporting that TSB has had an outage, and it usually takes them four or five hours for the BBC to report that kind of thing, she's not actually going to know that. So Paul Pester can be as transparent as he likes on Twitter, but, but you know, middle-aged ladies in South Wales are not going to know the know what's going on until they try and buy their groceries. Um, so I think that's an interesting point. Like Open communication is good, but you also think about the channels through which you are communicating. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's not enough to copy the challenger banks. You have yeah. to extrapolate the learnings and then apply them to your own situation. Um, so let's leave Let's leave Paul Pester. Um, I assume he's off on a very long holiday. Right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. Welcome back to Fintech Insider by 11FS. Our next story is post-Brexit boost to African markets. So the story actually comes from gov.uk and it's a headline that the UK will offer city expertise to boost Africa's growth, um, which is quite generic. But let me give you a bit more detail. So um, as the UK leaves the EU, the City of London will play an even greater role in financing the fastest growing economies across Africa, according to uh, one Ms. Theresa May. UK-Nigeria trade alone was worth over $4.2 billion last year. What's slightly weird to me is that the the press release points out that many UK companies, um, e.g. Shell, GSK, British Airways, have successful operations in Nigeria, but they've been there for a very long time and not necessarily for reasons that they would want to revisit. And then it goes on to say that Nigerian entrepreneurs will be connected with UK fintech investors and business mentors to get the finance and advice they need to start and grow their companies. So Nigeria is only one country. They're also looking at South Africa uh, or working with South Africa and a couple of other places, I believe. What I I know what I think about this, but I'm intrigued to know what other people think about this, like straight off the bat. I mean, so I I remember reading a story last month, um, the Nigeria-based payments startup Paystack, and they they raised sort of eight million dollars in a Series A from some really heavyweight investors, so um, companies like Stripe, Visa, Tencent, uh, Y Combinator. Um, so I think you know there's definitely uh, there's a growing ecosystem there. It's not it's obviously not somewhere compared to some of the other cities that you hear about, uh, some of the other countries and cities that you hear about around the world as being a sort of fintech hub. But um, there's you know there's huge potential, especially when you think about the you know the the size of the population, seventh largest population in the in the world. Um, Is it Nigeria? Yes, in okay. Nigeria. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in I think it's that in about by 2020, you know, about a third of the population will be under the age of 15. So, you know, huge sort of growth potential there as well. Um, and the fact that nearly 80% of the adult population are, you know, unbanked and they don't have access to basic banking services. So there's a huge gap in the market to fill. I think that's the positive outlook. I think my my instinct is to kind of first cringe, um, and secondly, think first of all the fact they just said 
Africa makes me go, do you know how big Africa is? Do you know how different every country is? And I actually spoke to Leslie Ann Vaughan, who uh, recently joined 11FS. Um, she is um, an incredible lady. She's one of the founders of M-Pesa. Um, and she sort of her her uh, insight into this, which is, is far greater than mine. It's not a market or an area I know much about. But um, she said that innovative countries in uh, northern Africa attract investment and scale up their businesses. But what she was saying is that northern Nigeria is so, so different to the south. They're like two completely different countries. So Lagos, where most fintechs are and where most investment probably go is in the south northern nigeria is not only very different economically it's also very predominantly muslim so then you know you have to start thinking about islamic finance as well as possibly as conventional finance i think i think what she did was sort of back up my initial thought which was like well this sounds great but just feels like it should be so much more focused it feels like it should be a specific city or a specific regulator that they're working with rather than going yay africa which yeah. just makes so many british people go oh no that is exactly it you summed it up so well i think you know we've talked in the past about mpesa and you know obviously they've had huge success in kenya and, and then have, have, have sort of experimented with other markets in in africa and actually not had the same success and that's because they've struggled to localize it mm-hmm. Um, I think in this instance, for me, the positive outlook, or at least, you know, in terms of justifying it, you know, obviously the UK is a massive fintech hub and actually should be sort of lending those expertise to sort of emerging markets and and sort of, I guess, nurturing fintech in those markets. My issue is, and it goes back to Brexit a little bit, is um, I think maybe now the UK is waking up to having um, neglected what were sort of Commonwealth markets or former colonies. Mm -hmm. And actually now we're waking up and going, all right, well, we're leaving Europe. We need to sort of explore other alternatives and it comes back to again that sort of starting point or that driving force behind it i, th- I think it's interesting as well um, you, that you say that because just to go back to our earlier point about hong kong most of the fintech bridges which is, which this isn't but it sounds a bit like there's part of a broader trade agreement are with um those countries that have legal systems that are very very similar to the uk's they either are ex-colonies or um like in the case of a lot of the, the middle eastern countries they looked at the british legal system and went yeah that works we'll have that um when they were setting up their own because they're much newer countries so um, it it does feel like it should have been a more obvious choice. Um, I think that possibly there are so many hurdles there. But in my mind, I like the as I, I like the idea of it. But um, I feel like I would have gone somewhere else first. Um, it's supposed to be somewhere easier. I'm by no means an expert in any African markets, but from my understanding, UK. The UK trade presence has been steadily declining in Africa since about the late 90s. And so I think to Ross's point, you have to question the timing of this. They've gone, oh, yeah, OK, whoops, wait, actually, let's let's revisit that. Yeah, okay, and I think yeah. China are really coming up at, course, yeah. in, in the market as well and have already overtaken the UK in terms of exports to Africa. And they're actually doing an awful lot of not only sort of exports to Africa, but a lot of land grabbing in Africa, aren't they? They're establishing themselves as um, as investors in everything from fintech through to precious metals and natural resources. And I imagine that possibly also has added to the point that both of you have made that there's kind of a wake-up call happening here. But of course, what was terrific was watching Theresa May deliver this statement through the medium of interpretive dance. <laughs> Um, so somebody who is an expert on uh, regulation and uh, regulatory interplay is Anna Wallace from the FCA. Um, we spoke to her last week. She was actually with the Prime Minister in Africa um, and she told us more about what the FCA actually plans to do for fintech in Africa. So she's got more detail on this. So I was very honoured um, to be invited to join um, the Prime Minister on her trip to Africa last week. It was her first visit to the continent as Prime Minister. Um, it's been five years since the UK PM has visited 
sub-Saharan Africa, and it's the first visit of its kind to Kenya for over 30 years, which is, is quite remarkable. I mean, obviously, the visit comes at a time of enormous change across Africa um, with great opportunity to work along, alongside African nations um, with mutual benefits. So it was definitely a big deal. Uh, the theme of the overall visit was renewing the partnership between the UK and Africa and seeking to maximise those shared opportunities and, and tackle common challenges, um, which, you know, I think is a, is a really important time and a pivotal time in the continent where there is kind of rapid uh, growth and change. So as part of the trip uh, and, and going forward, um, the, we developed the first UK-Africa fintech partnership. And, and you'll be hearing a lot more about that over, over the coming, coming months. And that's going to use the UK's unique experience to support African entrepreneurs to improve access to financial services for, for consumers and to encourage um, new investment. And that's going to be done um, under the leadership of the Department for International Trade's existing fintech board, which is chaired by um, the Lord Mayor um, and I sit on um, on behalf of the FCA. But what did the trip mean for, for the FCA? Well, for us, as part of um, developing the partnerships between the UK and Africa, we participated on the trip to build closer partnerships with financial services regulators, with fintechs themselves, and, and with the, the ecosystem that included accelerators, incubators, um, and a lot of development agencies as well, as you'd imagine, in Africa. What the FCA wants to do is support African entrepreneurs who are looking to scale to the UK and to help British companies enter these rapidly expanding markets. Um, but, a, but a particular focus for us, um, given the nature of these, these markets, is also to support the regulators uh, in Africa by sharing what I hope is a successful uh, experience of developing regulation and policies that encourages innovation, but not at the risk of protecting consumers. So we're going to be looking at ways that we can collaborate and work together on, on developing policies, but also potentially looking at new mechanisms to help financial innovators um, try out new, new ideas. And obviously, I spoke about um, the Global Financial Innovation Network, and that's something I spoke to people when I was out, out in Africa. But what else did I see on, on the ground? Well, I mean, you know, I genuinely saw a vibrant and exciting fintech market where you had entrepreneurs, government um, ministers uh, and officials and, and regulators all, um, you know, very much uh, having started their journey on thinking about how they can develop this market um, and, and looking at the at common cause of, of supporting the innovation. Um, but I want to give a, a couple of shout outs to people that um, I met on, on the trip. Um, and there were many. Um, and I think we're going to hear um, a lot more in terms of our work um, with um, African regulators and, and with, with the fintechs themselves over the coming months, as I say. Um, so I want to give a shout out to Lionesses of Africa. Um, this is an organization in South Africa that's looking to promote female entrepreneurs. Um, they've already been in the UK to showcase some of these entrepreneurs um, earlier this year. And I think they're going to be out um, early next year. So keep keep an eye out from them. They are, they are definitely bold and brave and, and have some um, incredible stories about how um, female entrepreneurs have broken through. FSD Africa, we met in um, Kenya and they've been doing some fantastic work in supporting that, the ecosystem in Kenya, which is, as we all know, um, is world leading um, with the likes of Impesa. 
And then in, um, in Nigeria, Ventures Platform, we were at their accelerator in Abuja uh, and just looking at some of the, the payments firms that are coming through um, their, their network was, was really impressive. Um, but in terms of tangible outcomes, um, I was delighted to meet with the governor of the Central Bank of, of Nigeria. Um, and we announced while I was on the trip our intention to explore the potential for deeper engagement and cooperation and uh, looking at developing regulatory frameworks to allow fintech to, to flourish in Nigeria. So that's you know, the first kind of tangible um, outcome from, from the trip. But I also met the Kenyan Capital Markets Authorities and, and other regulators, um, and we will be deepening those discussions over, over the coming months. So as I say, it was a fantastic opportunity for us to be there. There was a genuine buzz and sense of um, supporting fintech um, in the countries that I was at in Africa. Um, and I think there's going to be some kind of really fruitful discussions and, and tangible outcomes from our, our trip to Africa. Our next story is that Yolt partners with both Home Life and Pensionby. So uh, this story was reported uh, in numerous places. Um, we actually spoke to Lucy Wolfenden, who's the marketing director at Yolt, to get her take on this partnership extravaganza. At Yolt, we've been developing our partner platform across three key verticals, so bills and utilities, financial services, as well as leisure and entertainment. So this week, we're really excited to announce that in partnership with Pension B, you can now clearly track your pensions alongside your banks and credit cards. We've also just integrated with Home Life, which offers you hassle-free home insurance that can offer a slick UX experience to pre-fill some of your data to make it faster for you to get that quote. And then our third piece of exciting news this week is that we'll be announcing closed beta in Italy tomorrow. Um, this is after a really successful friends and family program. And then French beta is not far behind. So watch this space. So the details are that um, the, the way it works, we've actually been through this user journey, um, is you go into your old app and you go into the action section and you can see both Pension B and Home Life listed as partners. From a pensions perspective, it's it's really, really interesting um, because it's kind of coming around the same time as the, the, the sort of an awful lot of growing speculation that the Department of Work and Pensions will abandon the pensions dashboard, um, which for those who don't know is this project that allows you to see all your pensions in one place, which is also what Pension B does. But there was always a question about, well, how useful or how, how successful would Pension B be if the government provided a free uh, alternative service to that? Um, if it sounds like the pensions dashboard is falling apart, which I think is really sad, as an aside, um, then this definitely um you know opens up a whole you know a whole new channel of opportunity for pension B as is, as being in there you know in the Yolt app because more people will see it and go you know what's that the home life integration is in the same place and um, that's about uh, you know home insurance is an awful lot of people um, especially of our age and I'm looking around the room and I think I'm the oldest person here who don't have home contents insurance so you know people don't really realize they need it so uh, having it front and center in front of your face is, is only for the best um what, what do we think of this either you know the, the pensions or the integrations yolt we've got an awful lot we can dig into here this is like a brilliant fintech story there's all the angles yeah so i just did it literally in the break and, and actually it's a really really nice journey um you, you pension b right you had a pension b to yolt. Yeah, yeah i had so i i mean I, I use yolt anyway um i added pension b what i really like about so um i downloaded the pension b app which they um rolled out quite recently and being a sort of avid fintech uh, I, I i downloaded the app um and then i realized oh actually this isn't really very interesting 
because it, it it's just you know your pension balance and, and that's absolutely fine you don't need to check it every day um i've got it integrated into the the starling marketplace which is you know again fine but i don't really check it all that often what i quite like about the yolt integration is it doesn't show up as part of your safe to spend feature um it's sort of included under your account so it's not sort of front and center but if you want to be able to go and see it um you know how to go and access it so it's quite nice is it is so pension B is it is just showing everything together, right? It's not taking all your pension pots and pulling them somewhere into it. It's taking your past point. pension. So um, I, I mean, it's sort of two years ago now. The FT did this big story just in the UK, um, in terms of orphan pensions. So when you move from one employer to the other and you don't sort of let the your pension scheme know, obviously because of auto enrolment, you don't let the pension scheme know that you've now moved employer. Um, and there was about four hundred million pounds being left uh, in sort of unclaimed pension pots. That was back in two thousand sixteen. It's probably a bit higher now because um, auto enrolment is obviously more pre- prevalent and more people have have auto enrolled. So I think it's. It's a great idea. It sort of pulls the pensions from your your past employers all together in one part. And then if you were to move on, then you can sort of let them know and they'll take the one from, from this one. So a great way to sort of overcome that problem. Um, I use Pension B personally. I think, um, you know, as a Dane, I'm a big fan of pensions. Um, we always rank very well in terms of uh, the global rankings in, in terms of pension systems and management. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's you know, I, I think Pension B is a really, really useful app. And, uh, yeah, the integration, obviously, with, with Yolt and, and Homelify will... Home, home, home life. Home life, sorry. Uh, that will be, you know, that will mean that probably more people will be using it, which is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree um, that uh, pensions, pensions are the bane of my life. Like I spent an entire Saturday trying to work out where I had pensions because every company I've worked with has given me a company pension. And Aviva is pretty good. If I've got three different pensions with Aviva, I see them all on my online dashboard. I have to do anything. But I've got some with Agon and Standard Life and I couldn't find the paperwork and I couldn't log in online. So somebody who's going to like put them all in front of me and and the point is as well, if Yolt are working with Pension B to put pensions front and centre, then that's brilliant for both of them. I mean, for my part, I'm I'm really, really pleased to see Yolt moving on to the next stage of their strategy, which is beyond just showing you your current accounts, because I don't believe those tools can be fully useful until you actually see every aspect of your financial life and then you can make more informed decisions. Um, so that's, I mean, I'm super happy for that perspective. It's like anything. I mean, unless you have that, that sort of global overview, it's irrelevant. How can you as a, a bank hope to make recommendations to me financial recommendations for products or services etc if you don't have that sort of global overview if you're telling me you know you've got a thousand pounds that's sitting in your current account why don't you put it in this you know fixed saver where you're mm-hmm. earning very little interest but what you don't know is that i've got a credit card with someone else where i'm paying massive um massive yeah. interest those sorts of things so yeah that's when it becomes interesting isn't it i think to your point, Sarah, this is like fintech working at its best when things start to come together and you start to see how things might develop in a way that is a lot more informative, is a lot more useful to people rather than just seeing your pension, which maybe you don't need to do right now. Yeah. Um, so if you are uh, interested in pensions, which you all should be, um, you should stay tuned for our Pension B Takeover episode, which is coming soon. Um, you can also hear more from the Pension B CEO, Romy Savova, and I'm sure I've said that wrong, uh, who was on episode 229 of Fintech Insider. So we're just going to squeeze in one more international story because it's Australia and everybody knows how much I love Australia. So this is from Finextra. Um, The news is that Australia's Big Four, and if you don't know who Australia's Big Four are by now, then you haven't been listening closely enough, will roll out real-time payments with OSCO, I'm going to say, but without my Australian accent, it doesn't sound quite right. 
So this is a service that's built on top of Australia's new payments platform, which is their equivalent of faster payments, if you like. Um, that platform is expecting a surge in transactions um, as the big four banks roll out this OSCO service. Uh, basically, it enables account-to-account real-time payments via either email or mobile phone numbers. Um, it's a little bit complicated. So basically, you have to sign up to pay ID which is something that's available to all Australians. And that means that you can assign an ID to your bank account details. So it can be your email address, your phone number, um, something like that. And then that's what's called a pay ID. So instead of going, oh, let me find my sort code and my account number, you go, here's my email address. And that's what's attached to your bank account. Once you've done that, then you can go to your banking app and you can use OSCO to send money very quickly. I don't know the user journey in that I don't have to like log in to your banking app because then that makes it sound very similar to uh, PayM in the UK. You can, you know, if you want, attach uh, 280 characters of text or emojis to describe the payment. So, you know, that's a win. It says here that over 1.9 million Australians have already signed up for PayID and that's just the first step. But Australia has 25 million people. So I feel like they maybe have some way to go. It's interesting because Oscar has been around for a while. Uh, you can pay businesses as well as individuals. Most of the payments are to individuals and most of them are around uh, $25 per, per 25 Australian dollars per person. So, um, very much, it sounds like this is a very complicated version of Venmo to me. <laughs> I don't know about anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I, that's what I thought when I first read it was that it sounded a bit like Venmo, but but sort of not at the same time. I mean, um, one thing that struck out to me was I remember that story a few, maybe a few weeks ago, maybe a bit longer, um, where they're talking about how people were sort of the, the reference that they use when they transfer money and people were sort of using funny things like funny joke things like drugs money and then that was impacting your um, credit score. I'm just wondering how much damage people can do in 280 characters. You know, I mean, they can start detailing <laughs> drugs money specifically, this for cocaine and this for... <laughs> it's like an it's, itemized receipt. Yeah, exactly. I mean, honestly, I, uh, that makes me panic because some of my, my boyfriend takes pride in sending me transactions with like what he thinks is witty banter, but what I what makes me groan and like hide my faith. I know my bank manager's seen it. I don't know whether I... I Right. So the emoji capable references in Monzo are quite cool and quite kind of fit with their branding. But like, can I imagine sending you an emoji from First Direct? Like, I don't I don't know how that fits in. It feels a little bit weird. I completely agree. Um, and, and actually, yeah. So for me, this is basically Venmo or, or, or Serity or Point as well. Um, PayM and it's like, you know, the sign up figures, fair enough. They look good at first glance. But I think actually... I'd love to see that user journey if it's something like we had in the UK here where uh, the banks were pushing it quite hard and actually it was a fairly straight through journey, then you kind of do it just to get the notification out of out of the way. Sorry, I was going to say, I think that it's very classically Australian as well. It's like there are many startups who could do this much better than us, but we are the four big banks. We have been in charge here for a very long time and we will do it our way, even if that is exactly what, as Ross says, is not the best version for the consumer. You know, they, they just don't have a chance to let something like Venmo take off in Australia because everything is so strangled by those four big banks. I mean, I think I've said this before in the show as well. I think the only reason that um, Venmo has taken off in the States is because they don't have faster payments. You know, no one uses PayM here because we've got faster payments, so it's in your account instantly anyway. So what's the use case? But Australia does have faster payments. It does via the new payments platform. So this is what confuses me. It's like services built on services built on services. So you can use the new payments platform, I believe, to do what you can do in the UK, which is go in and like enter your name, your account number and your sort code and send money instantly. But it's not as kind of like 
easy as being like, well, Ross at 11fs.com, boom. It's much easier than me going, hang on, wait, was that a zero or a three? And then, you know, writing it wrong and you can't copy and paste and all that stuff. And you're more likely to have somebody's email or their mobile phone number than you are to have their sort of code and account number, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I buy the, I buy the premise. So I just think I. the execution here so is just... So do I. <laughs> I think... Um, we should clarify, though, you do love Australia. You just don't like Australian banks. Oh, yeah. For the benefit of the, the lovely, lovely Australians I spent this morning with, um, I, I love your country. I have serious concerns about your banking system, and I've never been more overjoyed than when I heard that the serious amount of investment and time is going into your fintech sector. No, it's, it's a good clarification. Just avoid any type of like gossip bubble or anything Yeah, like I that. am due to visit Sydney at Christmas, so I could really do with not being refused entry um, at the airport. So for the clarification, I love Australia. Not so much the banks. So moving us on to our and finally story. This is from Engadget, although it was reported all over the place. Um, Merriam-Webster has added more than 840 new, and it isn't words to its dictionary, it's entries to its dictionary. Um, So the the way that they do this is like they call it the step in the continuous process of recording our ever-expanding language. And it's it's, uh, not necessarily words as you know them, but it's it's phrases. And uh, we have bingeable, we have biohacking, and we have fintech. It's entered the dictionary or a dictionary. Um, also, we have predictive haptics, uh, bingeable, time suck, TLDR, bugging out and force quit. <sighs> I mean, I've, uh, I, I find this story slightly, um, I find it interesting. But I find it, I find it slightly unnerving that time suck is up there with fintech and haptics. Does that make sense to any, like... To, you know, to anybody else, it's kind of like well, one of those things is like definitely a widely used term. One of those is just like a phrase. I don't know. I, so I'm one of these um, people that actually uses the um, acronyms in 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 actual sentence. So I will se- I will finish a sentence with TBF, and I get a lot of stick for it. So this for me actually <laughs> do you works also quite say well. Lol when you think something's funny. No, I don't do that, but I do use t- like TLDR in in conversation. So you'll just say, hey, Sarah, TLDR, I need you to do this. Exactly. He does do that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Isn't that, I don't even know what TLDR stands for. Too long, don't read. Oh my Summary. God. Okay. So no long story reading. short. OMG. OMG. Um, XOXO. I don't know. I think for me, I was just happy because whenever I write something which has the word fintech in it, I always get this squiggly red line underneath. And now I think that's not going to happen anymore. Do you get autocorrect to Finch? The number of times my autocorrect has switched fintech to oh, finch. Let me try my phone right now, actually, and yeah. see what it comes up with. I, I mean, I've got such severe OCD that actually if the only positive outcome that comes out of this is the fact that it gets rid of that red squiggly line, I'll be very So pleased. it doesn't autocorrect on, on, on WhatsApp, but the, the red line does appear underneath. So, um, yeah. There's, there's hope. I mean, this also means that there's probably hope. Well, actually, no, I was going to say this also means there's probably hope that like when I say to people who are, you know, friends of my mum and they're like, what do you do? And it's like, I work in fintech. And my mum sort of pats me on the head and goes, Sarah works in London in finance. Um, they might finally understand what, what fintech is. But that said, this is I don't think that they have I have any faith that they will learn what biohacking time suck and TLTR are. So on the one hand, I was like, yay. And the other, I was like, oh, no, wait, bad grouping. Well, only if there's widespread adoption, unless your mother's friends make a habit of reading the dictionary. You know what? I don't know. I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> but I do I do like the premise. Yeah. I mean, the, the other ones that are non-finance uh, related or non-social sort of um, social media related are also uh, Food Bank, Tent City, Self-Harm, Generation Z, 
or Z, depending on where you are, bougie, and Latin X, which is apparently a gender-neutral term to Latina and Latino. Um, for me, it's very sad to see like food bank tent city and self-harm in there. Um, but but I th- again, a reflection of sort of where we are, right? Yeah. Like in, in, a, in a societal sense. In an, in an actual, you know, actually what this does is give us a complete snapshot of, as you say, society right now, certainly in the English-speaking Western world. But I think we shall all look forward to the day where there are no red squiggly lines under fintech in any kind of autocorrect program. Preach, sister. And on that note, that wraps up this week's new show. Uh, thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Lois? On Twitter, at Lois Ollerenshaw, L-O-I-S-O-L-L-E-R-E-N-S-H-A-W. Perfect. Uh, Val, everyone should know by now, but if they don't... Okay, then at Val Christensen on Twitter or Val Christensen on LinkedIn. Um, and then if you're if you're a business looking for a loan, oaknorth.com, or if you're interested in our fintech platform, then acornmachine.io. Perfect. And Ross? Yeah, so um, at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter or Ross Gur at 11fs.com. Gur, for the record, is spelled G-U-H. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky. Please join in the discussion on fintechinsidernews.com or tweet us at fintechinsiders. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode and to really make our weeks, please, please leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.